0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: Hello, Charles, and hello, listeners, for another episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Most every Christian church will have a statement of faith that represents their position on various doctrinal issues. Most will affirm the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Yet I doubt many within those churches could explain what the implications of the triune God are for God's people. Dr. Rushduni spent a lot of real estate on discussing the Trinity, two of his books especially, The Foundations of Social Order and The One and the Many. And he said that the Trinity answers the most pressing philosophical question that faces mankind. So, Charles, why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter?
0: Well, it matters on a number of different levels, obviously because Orthodox Christianity, true biblical Christianity in other words, has emphasized that our faith is Trinitarian, and the implications of that have their deepest roots in philosophical thinking, which is another way of saying theology, because all types of thinking, every type of thinking is theological at its root. But early on, uh, philosophers going back, especially to ancient Greece, began to wrestle with some issues that, being ignorant of the scriptures, they sort of wandered around trying to make sense of the real world. And we're not talking about the fact that somebody would see, you know, a tree growing somewhere in a grove and they'd, they'd never seen that kind of tree before. That's one type of making sense of the world, but I mean something far more metaphysical and foundational. And in this case, and where the Trinity directly speaks to this issue is the problem of the one and the many. Now, that's a phrase that probably uh, our listeners de- haven't heard at the local office party lately.
1: <laughs> and
0: least. Uh, yes, it's, it's uh, it it can be a rather challenging philosophical subject. And I know in at least one place, Dr. Rustuni lamented the fact that in his time when he wrote, I'm, I'm thinking he's right. He was writing in the 1970s that even then philosophy students in undergraduate studies Rarely, if ever, encountered the issue or the problem of the one in the many as as a specific subject. So maybe it would be helpful for us to start off by defining what that is and why. Well, we and we'll get to why the Trinity uh, helps with this, but why the issue of the problem of the one in the many is so so significant.
1: All right. So, before, I mean, I, I think sometimes you need to lay a foundation, and one of the things that's obvious if you have ever read, and I'll grant that not all Christians have read the Apostles' Creed. Mm -hmm. So what was the Apostles' Creed? It wasn't a creed that was written down by the Apostles, so much it was a creed that reflected the basic teachings of the Apostles. And it has been said that the Apostles' Creed was the baptismal creed before somebody said, I am a Christian. This is what I need to believe just the same way in any other venue. If you're going to sign up to be part of a club or association, there are things that mean you're part of the association and there are things that mean you're outside the philosophy or the thinking of it. So the apostles creed, short as it is, is a Trinitarian creed. It goes into the Father. It goes into the Son and it goes into the Holy Spirit. So the question is, why was that important? as people who were coming out of pagan cultures were going to now identify and join with the Christian faith why were those things important well more than likely charles it had to do with the philosophy and cultures they were coming out of didn't affirm the trinity would you say that's a correct assessment
0: i uh, absolutely i would yes
1: so the issue is god and when we speak of god we should be thinking the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, rather than taking our favorite person of the Trinity and say, I'm a real Jesus person, I'm a Father person, or I'm a Spirit person. When the Bible talks about God, it's talking about the triune God, and we need to keep that in mind. Otherwise, we will slip into a philosophical position that doesn't comport with Scripture.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people, they understand that they maybe belong to a fellowship, a church that is Trinitarian, that it affirms the historic Christian faith as expressed in the Apostles' Creed and the other creeds of the churches. But maybe they never really understood, well, you know, that's just, yeah, that's something we believe, but so what? I'm not really sure the implications of it. And there's some churches, for example, they might nominally affirm the Trinity, but you hardly ever hear the Trinity invoked. It's always Jesus this and Jesus that. That's fine. You know, at some point, people need to hear that prayers are being offered, that belief is founded upon the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like you just said, not the separation of one from the other or the exclusion of two to, to one. This is important because to go back to what I was saying earlier about the influence of or the attempts of Greek philosophers in particular, I mean, that was the... Uh, the culture in which the Christian church began to arise and flourish over a certain period of time, these people, had re- their, their philosophers, their aca- academicians, had wrestled with issues of the basic nature of reality for a thousand years. And they never reached any kind of uh, satisfactory conclusion about whether reality was one thing or whether it was many things. Now, they knew that there were many, many things. For example, say, for example, uh, apples, okay? There are many types of apples. There's this type and that type and this type, but that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us unless we have a larger, bigger picture of what an apple is generally. So that that would be the one, and then the, the, the many would be the different types of apples. Again, this sounds somewhat uh, academic, but the reason why this is important, and the reason why you may have to sort of, uh, you know, tune up your your gray cells a little bit and put on your thinking caps, as some of my teachers used to say, is because what happens in philosophy, sooner or later, it turns up in your culture. Francis Schaeffer, in one of his writings, one of his early writings, uh, The God Who Is There, he has an excellent little line-drawn chart. It's it It's sort of drawn like a stairway. And at the top, he has philosophy, and then the next step down is art, and the next step down is music, and then general culture, and then theology. And the point that he's making, and and he was getting this type of teaching from Dr. Rustuni and from Cornelius Van Til, is that something begins uh, to be discussed or a problem arises among academic philosopher types, which is far removed from the experience of most people, but... It doesn't just stay in the university offices of some Ivy League school or of the the academy where Plato taught. It makes it, it filters down to the popular culture through art, through music, and then into the general culture. And finally, it generally ends up being reflected in the religious traditions of the people in those cultures. So there's a reason why, and you can see this when you look at the sculptures and the, the types of artwork going back to ancient Greek culture. And then you can trace that through various phases and then into other types of cultural expressions, how that all begins to change. And that's not because some artist just got up one day and said, I think I'll change this. Uh, it, It is a reflection of much, much deeper philosophical and theological type of thinking that are beginning to show up in the popular culture.
1: So it sounds like what you're saying is we need a context. Just the same way when you look at the law that God gave to Moses, there are very specific things that are addressed there that would be better understood because they just came out of Egypt, right? So the things about having no other gods, not worshiping idols. Egyptian culture had men as gods and had many idols that people would worship and we could go down the commandments. To bring it a little bit more to the present, when we look at the U.S. Constitution and you fail to look at the context out of which that constitution was formulated and you don't know about the War of Independence and you don't know about the infringement of the rights by Parliament and the King, there's a lot of things you won't understand like why the First Amendment, why the Second Amendment. So things just don't as you said, pop up out of a vacuum that they thought, you know what? The right to have and bear arms, you know what? Nobody's ever talked about that before. Let's just do it. No, it was because of the threat from their perspective of a statist regime saying, you must do this, you must do that, infringing on the liberties. So going back to the Apostles' Creed and the philosophy, as you said, that was existing surround the early church, what sort of philosophical positions were antithetical to a Trinitarian view of the world and the creator?
0: The prevailing teachings uh, in, in ancient Rome, and from which they, they got their, their philosophical thinking primarily from the ancient Greeks, were founded on, mainly on the teachings of Plato. The British philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, I think, was the first to make the comment that all philosophy is just a footnote to Plato. So the influence of Plato's thinking is so very profound, it, it simply cannot be avoided. And so it was only natural that when the gospel of the kingdom began to spread in the Greek-speaking world, as it did spread over time in a very fast, rapid fashion— You had people coming into the church, you know, maybe not a slave or a housemaid uh, or an artisan, but other people of maybe a little higher intellectual standing who were steeped in that type of thinking. And so it would be only natural for them to try to understand the message of Jesus and the teachings of, of God's law in a context that they were already familiar with. And that is one reason why the early church fathers and the writings of people like Paul, and others, they had to interact with this on a certain level, in some cases a very intense level. Uh, We know, I believe it's Acts chapter 17, where Paul encountered the Greek philosophers in the city of Athens, and, and he had some dialogue with them. So the thing is that many people were largely operating from the standpoint that, and we hear this today in some types of New Age thinking, all is one. Everything is a part of one Massive, large, permeating substance, whether it's called being or something like that. And the idea there is that there's ultimately no separation between the one, the the ground of all existence, and everything that exists. So derived from that is the idea that we all have divinity within us. You know, we all are little gods. But then on the other hand, you had certain types of cynical Uh, almost semi-atheistic types of philosophies that said, no, the gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods are just like we are. They're all humans. And so there really is no meaning to anything because the gods fight among themselves just like we do, and they're just as passion-driven. So the best we can hope for is to live what we would call a noble life and die on good terms. So those are some of the things that were in the backgrounds. And when we read things, in, especially in Paul's writings, we have to remember that They mean something to us in our cultural context, but at the time that he said them, they may have had a much more direct application to the way people were thinking at the time. We live in, it may be a largely post-Christian culture now, but nevertheless, when Paul began teaching and when the gospel of the kingdom began to spread, there had been no Christian culture whatsoever. It was all pagan. So that creates a little different context for understanding
1: these things. And as we talked in a recent podcast about a return to paganism, that there is an appeal to being as God. There's an appeal that everything is everything and and nothing really matters and all is one. And it's the epitome of, I don't really have to be that responsible because I don't really have to answer to any one person or thing. And yet, when we talk about the one and the many, What we're saying is that throughout history, starting from right after the fall, the question was who or what takes precedence, the collective, the oneness of something, or the particularity, the individuals. And so the question arises, how does the Christian, the biblical perspective of the creator-creature distinction, not this oneness that you were talking about, but there's this distinction. There's the creator, and then there's everything else that he created. How does the Trinity, the fact of three persons in one God, give mankind the biblical blueprint on how to live and respect and prosper under God?
0: Let me start out and attempt an answer to that question by quoting Dr. Rushduni. I'm circling back a little bit, but I think it's important to put this out there in, in getting at that question about the Trinity. In his book, which is titled The One and the Many, uh, in the first, second, second, or third page, he says, Whether recognized or not, every argument and every theological, philosophical, political, or any other exposition is based on a presupposition about man, God, and society, about reality. This presupposition rules and determines the conclusion. The effect is the result of a cause. And one such basic presupposition is with reference to the one and the many. So if uh, we're talking about, let's say, for example, the issue of morality. You know, I have my standard of morality, you have yours, and the guy across the street has his. So we've got these particular individual moralities. But if there's not one absolute to draw them all together, then there's nothing but total chaos. So in terms of the Trinity, the, the problem of the one and the many, where you've got absolute oneness, but you've also got real plurality, is solved in that doctrine. And that's why the early church and the early Christian writers held to it and promoted it. I mean, it's taught in Holy Scripture that this is who God is. You know, uh, there are religions that believe in only one God, and they're not Trinitarian. That is not the Christian faith. And speaking for myself, myself personally, that's why I have serious reservations about a phrase like Judeo-Christianity. There is only one Trinitarian faith, and it is the biblical Christian faith. So the, the Trinity, when we understand the nature of the, the oneness of the Trinity, but also the plurality, that we have three distinct persons in one Godhead. Then we, we, we see there that there is both the unity and the plurality and it's fully explained and understood because in paganism and all the other types of theological or philosophical expression, you've got one or you've got the other. But the history of philosophy and the history of society and culture has been the effort to try to bring those things together. And it ultimately has led to failure because the people who've tried to do that have been profoundly and completely non-biblical in their thinking, which is to say, non-Trinitarian.
1: So, okay, let's just, I mean, I think this is an important discussion, and for a lot of people who came into the faith being told that you really don't have to get very philosophical on things, just believe in Jesus, just ask him into your heart, they miss this kind of discussion, which will help them if they understand it, understand the world around them. So I'm going to posit a dilemma that many Christians face today. So we have this whole transgender movement where we're supposed to not recognize a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, male or female in terms of objective standards, but in the subjective standards of the person who identifies one way or the other. So how do we see this play out? Well, we see that there are people who were born male, but identify as a female, and now they're competing in women's sports, and in many cases, outdoing the field tremendously because nothing new. We knew that men were stronger, bigger, and had more athletic prowess compared to women. Not that women can't be athletic, but traditionally, women would compete against women. Men would compete against men. So now we have this problem that we have to let this happen because we cannot deny an individual person his ability to be himself. Meanwhile, so we, we have this particularity, but the entire sport or the entire realm of female athletes is sacrificed, the one, for the many, this one particular person who feels this particular way. And to be honest, in discussion with people who don't really understand the value of understanding the Trinity, they scratch their head and say, I don't think there's a real answer to this.
0: And it's no wonder that they would do that because they have gone down this path of denying the central importance of the one and the many and the biblical solution to the problem. If I can quote Dr. Rushduni one more time in the same book, he says that when man seeks to find the meaning of history in history, he ends up denying the validity of history. And he says when he seeks to explain the one and the many in terms of history, he ends up negating one or both and destroying meaning in either case. And this, the issue that you mentioned, that of transgenderism, uh, we could also throw in the, uh, transhumanism and other things, is a direct result. I mean, it is a maybe an endpoint to a progression of denying the importance of having a unifying factor for all the different particular understandings of things. If there's no one absolute teaching that is the overarching uh, foundation for everything else, then you wind up where we are today. Now, historically and traditionally, that one overarching teaching has been God's law, the revelation of God in Holy Scripture. That's been the foundation of how people have understood everything about who they are, what is politics, what is a family, what is a man, what is a woman, what are children, all of these kind of things, and all of those, as you mentioned, are particulars. But the the thing that gives them meaning, the thing that holds that binds them together, is the teachings of Holy Scripture. It, it, if it's not that, it's going to be something else that is defective by definition, and that sooner or later leads to profound problems, either in personal life, family life, or in society.
1: All right. So you've been saying this phrase, the answer to the one of the many is found in the Trinity. So let's kind of flesh that out a little bit. God is one, one God, and there are three persons in that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to be honest with you, and I'm not ashamed to say it, my understanding of the Trinity is limited because I have to take it on faith rather than complete understanding, because the more I try to explain it, other than this is what the scripture says, the more I give myself a headache and I start making less sense than I wish to make. But the answer to the problem of the one and the many is, what does God say? So if we're trying, let's go to my example of women's athletics. Does God refer to women's athletics in his word? No, but it says at the very beginning of scripture, he made them male and female. He created them that way. So the person who quote unquote identifies other than the the sex God gave him at birth And we start talking about, you know, gender assignments and we're all off into some fantasy land that says we can make this up as we go along. The answer is right there. So to go any further than, well, what about how that person feels or how would you feel if you were in that situation? And people like that might commit suicide. All that aside, God has already told us there's two, male and female. And the answer is to, well, what should take precedence? all of women's athletics, or an individual, neither one should take precedence. God's law should take precedence. And that's the view that I think is missing from most people's understanding of the Trinity, that if you want to understand, well, what's better, anarchy or tyranny? The answer is neither one, but a social order based on God's law. That's the only thing that will ensure liberty.
0: And it is a fact that the the two things you just mentioned, anarchy and tyranny, are a direct result of errors on one side or the other of this issue. Because people have found throughout the, the millennia that they can't live without some sort of unification or unifying concept about reality. Uh, There has to be something that holds it all together, or you've got total anarchy, chaos. And history has shown that most people cannot live like that. So then that means it gravitates in the, the other direction to where there's an emphasis on the oneness or the centrality that can give meaning to all the particular things out there. And so it's no coincidence that when that is put in an imbalanced place, it leads to tyranny. It leads to the centrality of government. It leads to... A dictatorship or, or something, the, the, the glorification of the state, the pharaoh, the king, the emperor, whatever it may be. Uh, th- there's something that gives all the rest of the stuff meaning. The shorter catechism, I think, has a very good short definition of the Trinity. Three persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so, Again, I I, I keep saying this, and I hope it's getting through to folks, that it's impossible to have in reality, in life, in society, a way of living or a way of thinking that does not embrace the, the problem involved in this issue of the one and the many.
1: We should never subordinate one person of the Trinity under the other. Father's number one, Jesus number two, and then we'll say that uh, the Spirit is number three. It's an economic relationship, a partition of emphasis within the Godhead. Right. However God does it, and this is where I said earlier, You can really get a headache if you're trying to say, I have to understand this completely. No, I just have to believe it completely and pray that as long as God has me here, that I'll understand it more and more. And I don't know, maybe by the time I'm in glory, I'll be like, why did I have a question about that? I don't understand. (laughs) Right? But right now we believe first and then we understand after our belief. So that economic division of emphasis, labor, specialty, That's God's issue. That's God's decision. How that all filters into the life of man is that he's given us his word, his revealed will that allows us to put God's interests over our own fallen interests. And by that, I mean that I may not like an uh, application of a law that this law actually says, nope, you were wrong there. Well, I can fight it and decide, well, I'm not going to obey that law. Well, I do that to my peril. Or I say, okay, I see the premise there. I don't even have to like the resolution in terms of my emotions or whether I benefit or don't benefit only as people submit their lives to God's law and let the chips, as they say, fall where they may. Oh, this time I benefit. Next time I might not benefit personally, but ultimately liberty is only possible when people mutually agree that they're not God and there is a God and that God has spoken and that God will always see to it that his word does not come back to him void. So whether anarchy lasts for a while or tyranny lasts for a while, it will ultimately be destroyed because God's word will always be preeminent.
0: The uh, the quote that I just shared from Dr. Rastuni, where he talked about people trying to understand or interpret history from within history leads uh, eventually to meaninglessness is um, the the ground on which uh, for, out of which you made this reference to you know the way things have unfolded in certain places and I'm I'm going to go beyond that and say if if people will look at history and, and try to understand that you you can see in various cultures whether it's a polytheistic culture or whether it's a monotheistic culture the lives of people, the nature of their societies and uh, cultures have developed in a specific way based on how they've understood who they are and what history is all about. And if it's a a culture that worships many different gods, so the emphasis in part of our discussion is on the many or the particulars, or whether it's a monotheistic type culture, Uh, such as an Islamic culture or an ancient Judaistic culture, it develops in a very different way than the others. And that's why when we see a culture that has been completely, or I shouldn't say completely, has been largely founded on the doctrine of the Trinity, it is different from all the others. And it is the one that has produced a lasting meaning of the idea of human freedom and liberty, as you just mentioned. And what we're seeing today, which unfortunately we are witnessing in real time, is the decadence and decline of that understanding in our own culture where it once flourished. Because the founders of these United States, whether or not they were full Trinitarians or deists or whatever, they, they had an operating understanding that they moved out of a biblical morality to interpret and understand something about what it means to be a human being in government and society. And they were doing that coming out of a culture where everything was centralized in one voice, one authority, the king, you know, the, uh, the, the the crown. And that's an example of how it it went in the UK. You know, it degenerated into that, that kind of thinking. So uh, this business of the one and the many, uh, how to reconcile there being many things with there being one thing is a very important one. And if I can maybe just give one more practical type example of, what this looks like it's like the idea of um, well okay if you have in your house many different types of chairs you've got chairs in your dining room chairs in your living all of these are chairs and they're all very different from each other so we if we don't have a universal general idea of what a chair is then we've got kind of a chaotic situation or we could say we don't really understand at all what a chair is unless there was a foundational understanding of something called a chair to begin with.
1: And you can even see in the U.S. Constitution with the division of powers, a threesome. It's the legislative, it's the executive, it's the judiciary. So that pattern of three in one, one government, but three aspects of the government, they understood that where liberty comes from. And of course, the scripture will say where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. The spirit of the Lord, and we're talking God here, is encompassed in our understanding and needs to always be referenced with the triune God. But to pick up on where you were talking about anarchy or tyranny, if there's no unifying oneness in terms of God and then the particularity of the three persons in God, which means that, In a social order, you can't make the collective more or less important than the individuals. The only thing that prevails then is force, who has the most spears, who has the most tanks, or as a recent world leader said, you have no defense because we have F-15s and you don't. In other words, the force is only thing that is left. We're going to coerce you. But liberty is antithetical to coercion, and that's why Dr. Rushduni would say over and over again, the answer isn't political, the answer isn't revolution, the answer is regeneration, because only when individuals submit themselves to the authority of Christ and to the recognition of their sin and to the receiving of his mercy will we have any possibility for liberty.
0: And he wrote extensively about the importance of this issue. I mentioned his book the called "The One and the Many." We highly recommend that book to our readers. You can get it in ebook format. Uh, there are many audio lectures on the Calcedon.edu website where Dr. Rastuni spoke on this matter. And in in those th- places, he talks about the central importance of this, and he gets into some of the deeper philosophical things. But he, he's also very uh, quick to point out. Why this matters in real life? Another one of his books where he did something similar was the Foundations of Social Order. You know, too often we we dismiss the early history of the Christian movement as just you know a bunch of guys who spoke Greek and Latin, and uh, they they were getting all exercised about this, and now they had these councils, and they kicked this guy out because he didn't agree with that thing, and all these people understood the profound significance of, say, for example, denying the place of Christ the Son in the place of the Trinity. Uh, They may not have articulated it like, say, one of Dr. Rashtuni's books, but there was a real understanding that something majorly, significantly wrong was going to be happening if we don't understand that there are three persons in the Godhead and that they are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And so I'd like to recommend to our listeners to spend some time in those writings in particular because you will come away – However you may be tracking with what we're talking about here today, you will come away from those readings and those studies with a profound, I think, understanding of why this is vitally important and we neglect it to our peril.
1: And let me just add, having conducted classes on both those books, The Foundations of Social Order and The One and the Many, that if I were going to recommend where someone starts, I would say The Foundations of Social Order and expect to be challenged In other words, we're so used to sound bites. We're so used to internet summaries that we don't, we've lost the ability in a lot of ways to dive deep into a subject and be challenged by the material. I recently completed with a group a study of the one and the many. I've read it before. I'll be honest. It still challenges me because as we go through, the philosophies of the ancients, and then we go into modern philosophy and the Enlightenment and the effects that it's had and ending up with Marxism and socialism. If you decry those aspects of our society now and you don't understand the theological basis either for the error or for when things are done properly, you're going to always be at the mercy of propaganda one way or the other. Yes. So I've had a woman recently say to me, oh, you know, I wish I had started this earlier. Uh, If if I had done it in my 30s or my 40s, and I was like, okay, so let's acknowledge that in God's sovereignty, you started being exposed to this now. So understand as you can, give yourself time. It's not like there's a, a time limit. You have to be through this book in a certain amount of time. Read enough to think about it, to to contemplate on what the implications are. And then you will see that every debate and every heresy that we see today and the early church had to face had to do with an attack on the Trinity. And that may seem out there to you, but you'll get it the more you decide that it's important to get it. I doubt, sincerely, Charles, that our discussion here is going to make it crystal clear to people, because I think you'll admit it's a subject that's challenging even for you.
0: Yes, and I've witnessed more than a few um, presbytery exams where men who aspire to ministry, to ordain ministry, are being examined for licensure or ordination, and this question will come up. And, you know, people may hear this is a popular way of understanding the Trinity. You know, it's like a man is, say, a man, he can all, at the same time, he's a father and a brother. You know, he's all three. Or they'll say it's like uh, water can be ice, it can be vapor, uh, and it can be, you know, liquid water. And those are used sometimes to explain the Trinity. Neither of them are adequate. They all fail to properly speak to what the Trinity is. They reflect an, an ancient teaching, a false teaching called modalism. Anyway, it, it's it's something that uh, we would and just encourage people to spend some time contemplating, especially through through the writings of Doctor Rastuni. I mentioned Francis Schaeffer earlier, and realize that you know we again are living in real time the consequences of the denial of these things, and that's why we see trending. In our society, and we've seen it in other places, um, a, a massive emphasis on centralized authority. You know, we will tell you how to think. We will tell you where to go. We will tell you what to believe. You know, we're, we're going to take care. Of it. It's all being centralized in the hands of a, of a central core. But then on the other end, you know, the, the anarchy part of it. And, you know, we have sympathies, I think, as theonomic Christians in some of these areas where there's some people who are absolute anarchists and they think that the, the uh, the main, the only source of authority is the individual. You know, I, I will act in my own self-interest, and that's the main thing. That I, You know, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that I don't know of any society that has ever succeeded or existed like that, because sooner or later, you have to have something outside of the individual to be the unifying factor for peace and you know, unity, in society, in a family, or in a culture. I mean, I, that might be another way for people to get a handle on the importance of this, is if you've got a family of a mother and a father and, say, three children, and at a certain point it's decided, well, all of us, all five of us have equal authority, well, you might see how that will end up.
1: But by the same token, the person who does have the position of authority, whether it be the father in the family, the pastor in a church, or a civil ruler that those roles do not get to act independently of God's law. Right. And so we have to understand within the structure of the family, yes, to become one and then a child will come from them. So we could say, okay, the father and the son and proceeds the spirit. Again, all our analogies are going to be limited, but the father, because he's the father, doesn't have the right to disregard the individuality of his wife or his children. And I think there's a tendency, if you don't really understand the balance that God's word gives us as an imitation of made in his image, which is a triune God, that we can fall into familial tyranny, ecclesiastical tyranny. And of course, we're all very familiar with statist tyranny. So we've got to be able to look at everything. So without giving answers or whatever, but here's the discussion, the issue of abortion. How does the one and the many deal with the issue of abortion? How about the issue of mandatory, you know, lockdowns and mandatory vaccines? How does that fit into the idea of the one and the many? I could give you my opinion, Charles you could give your opinion, but it's much better to be able to pursue it individually, to understand God's mind on this so that you really can be standing on the word of God.
0: Yeah, and that's another example of how this issue intersects with real life and how, although the topic may sound arcane and hard to grasp, it nevertheless trickles down. It echoes down through every aspect of life if there is not a proper understanding of both unity and plurality in the biblical sense. And um, the issue of human abortion is one of many examples. Dr. Rastuni, in the book that I quoted earlier with the title, The One and the Many, and he he wrote this book, I think, yeah, in 1971, he says, The modern era, which can also be called the age of humanism, has been rich in its promises to man, cradle-to-grave security, equality, a rich life for all, the abolition of poverty, ignorance, war, disease, and even death itself. Year in and year out, modern man has had the message of nearing utopia dined into his ears. He has believed it. So that's another example of the effort to try to explain things in a way that brings unity out of the plurality and with a humanistic base, in other words, saying without a base in God's law word, it always leads to a failed utopia and often to a nightmare.
1: Yes. And as one looks at history, whether ancient history, medieval history, modern history, the glasses should have a lens that says, okay, how is this culture dealing with the one as opposed to the many? Where was predominance or preeminence given Was it to the individual or was it to the collective? How do we view communism? How do we view socialism? How do we view promises made to give certain groups of people a benefit and then sacrificing another group for the benefit of someone else? In a sense, Charles, it's very simple, but it gets complicated when you see how man's sin can pollute something that's very good.
0: But for the grace of God, uh, there is that problem, and that is why it's so important for us to be fully devoted and dependent on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we are truly given new life in Christ to deal with these issues. And if I can just say, in conclusion for my part, that uh, you referenced earlier, some people just say, well, you know, isn't it the main thing I need to do is, is ask Jesus into my heart or become a Christian? Well, yes, that's an important thing in in the general sense of what that's talking about. But the message that Christ began to preach and taught was the message of the kingdom. And that implies a, a life of action, a life of building, a life of moving forward, not just simply believing something and then waiting to go to heaven when you die or whatever it is. One of the reasons that we face the problems we face even today is because of a failure, on the part especially of people who claim to believe the message of the gospel, that it is a call to action, a call to reconstruction, a call to moving out in all areas of life that have been dominated by Satan and reclaiming those for Christ Jesus.
1: Exactly. So the atonement is certainly a central thing to grasp. Without the atonement, without our sins being paid for, without our receiving the Holy Spirit— quite frankly, we're worthless. And so the purpose of our salvation has to include furthering the kingdom of God. And so for people who say, well, I'm not into reading, I'm not into this head stuff, maybe that's why we find ourselves in a place we don't want because we're not willing to take the time to go beyond, I think, I feel, to thus saith the Lord and the implication of that. And so if we can't get beyond our own discomfort level, that this might be hard to understand, recognize that we're the products of an educational system that didn't want us to understand this. So to have to experience the minor discomfort of, wait a minute, I, I don't really understand this quite yet. Okay, so put yourself back as you were when you were learning things that you use all the time now. I just can't encourage our listeners enough to make yourself students of the word, not just so you could pass a multiple choice or true or false test, but you could say how these important doctrines affect the issues and the challenges that we face today, all for the purpose of serving the kingdom.
0: And with that, I completely agree.
1: Okay, well, that's good. (laughs) All right, listeners. There are probably going to be questions, and you can submit those questions for discussion. Both Charles and I are willing to interact with people who really want to understand this and get some immediate answers so that they're better able to pursue what we've suggested. You can do that by reaching us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. If you do have these questions, you can include in your email who you'd like to address them to, and I promise you we will get back to you. And so, Charles, thanks for this discussion.
0: Thank you, Andrea.
1: And listeners, we'll catch you next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.